He's been conning the British public since this pathetic comeback of his. Listen to me right now. Let's be totally honest. Let me David, let's, let's be totally honest, brother. Them two guys you just fought, I could be, they're in town now. They're actually, they're, they're, working, they're either working on nightclub doors or they're putting the bins away. Them two guys you fought last two were a joke. And you're robbing everybody who pays to come in the arena. Listen, you, you predicted BJ was going to beat me, didn't you? You predicted he was going to be, he got smashed. And you see you, you're going to get smashed too. I don't care how, deep, how dangerous you think you are. We remember what happened when I was an amateur. We remember what happened when I was an amateur and you were fighting for the British title. Me and Pricey spanked you in the gym and the next day you pulled out against Mark Hobson. And you know what? With 10 ounce gloves on, boy, I'll put you and that pathetic haircut to sleep. So, how does this fight happen? Because the WBC... Listen, I don't care, listen, SpongeBob SquarePants. Welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where apparently Demetrius Andrade is doing a press conference, but I and the rest of the boxing community won't be watching it. Um, yeah, if ever there was a fight that is a hiding to nothing, it'll be Zach Parker versus Demetrius Andrade at Pride Park. No one's going to care about that fight. It's it's a fight that no one, it doesn't go anywhere for anyone. Zach Parker's in a position he probably doesn't deserve. And to be honest, Demetrius Andre's in a position that he really doesn't deserve because he should have been better than he is. But he chose a certain path and that comes with costs. But today I wanted to start with, with a TV show, which I don't often do. But I thought it was a brilliant documentary, so I had to share it to as many people as I could. And it was a BT sport documentary, M14, a Manchester story, which was about um, Phil Martin. So you know, if you're truly hardcore, you know who Phil Martin is. If you're not hardcore and if you're new to the sport, you won't necessarily know who Phil Martin is. So Phil Martin was a boxer. Uh, I think, I think he's of Nigerian origin. So I think his parents might've come over from Nigeria. But he boxed as a light heavyweight back in the 70s. Yeah, decent enough. Like, it, it's hard to tell now because boxing then is not boxing now. So now you've got, you know, you've got box work, you've got 24-7 coverage, you've got video footage. It's always hard to tell where someone would sit in relation to what we're familiar with now, right? You know, would Phil Martin beat a Clinton Woods? Very hard to tell. And that's generally why it's hard to compare fighters between eras. But he had a career, I think he was uh, like, like 14 wins, 6 losses, something like that. And and after he retired, I guess he just wanted to open up a gym. And as, as I can tell you from hard experience, it's never as easy as you think because they're basically money pits. 
Boxing gyms are money pits, particularly if you have them in deprived areas. They are money pits because, you know, you've got overheads to pay, but you've got a clientele that often struggle to pay. And if you look at Manchester in the late 70s and early 80s, no one could pay with the rates of unemployment. I mean, you've got double digit unemployment. I mean, even probably more so in places like Moss Side, where where Phil Martin was from. And so that takes you to 1981, where you had just the wave of riots and you can go into the socio-political aspects of it, but essentially people had just had enough of not being part of this dream of prosperity that was being shared across Britain. And so people kicked off, you know, things were going wrong. The institutions had the working class under oppression to a degree. And so I guess the, the pressure cooker blew up eventually. And so, in the embers of a burning city, which is Manchester, post-riot and all of that, Phil Martin sets up a Jim Edison's building. I don't want to ruin the whole thing for you, so you should watch it. But essentially, he, he goes from opening up a gym and in the space of a decade, ends up with four British champions. In the space of a decade. At a time when you couldn't just get title shots. At a time when... You couldn't just maneuver your guy into these sorts of positions. And also at a time when you didn't have as many belts. So you didn't have all of these English belts and so on and so forth. They didn't exist. So you really had to graft to get there. And and there are a number of reasons why the, the documentary resonated with me. And I think everyone should watch it. But it was, number one, it's the legacy for Martin left. And if you think about the people that cite Phil Martin as an influence, rest in peace, Oliver Harrison, uh, Billy Graham. I never know if Billy Graham's alive. I hope, hopefully, he still is. Um, you know, you got Joe Gallagher. Uh, and then you got others. You got like guys like Morris Core. I think it's Mario Culpepper. All of these guys who, who came afterwards and carried on the legacy in their various forms, but all contributed towards training guys. I think Morris Core trained Steve Foster Jr. as well. So, so the legacy continues. And you, if you've listened to me often enough, you'll understand that I'm a big believer in these legacies because in these legacies, the knowledge transfer is, is not absolute, but it's good enough. So the fact that you've got guys like Billy Graham, Joe Gallagher, and you had Oliver Harrison, that tells you Phil Martin's an important anchor in the Northwest boxing scene. Now, the second thing that's equally surprising is how little airtime Phil Martin gets. And I'll repeat this again. In the space of 10 years, he went from having to build a gym to having four British champions. And that's all the guys that he had come through the amateurs in order to funnel down into those British champions. One man. One man and his vision. And yes, he had help from others. Yeah, 100%. But the driving force was Phil Martin. Those who know how hard it is to get a couple of champions understand that to do that in a decade is absolutely insane. And as I was watching this documentary, and I don't want to ruin the content of it, so go and watch it. I think, you know, Joe Gallagher gives a fantastic account of himself in that, as do the rest of the, the disciples of Phil Martin, like Morris Korn, Mario Culpepper, uh, Eric Noy. A lot of people really, really hold it down. Although I, I still want to know who the hitman was. Because apparently, one of the boxers at Champs Camp, which was the name of Phil Martin's gym, was a known hitman, and I'd love to know who that was. But 
Watching that documentary just, you, it, as a trainer, makes you reflective. So number one, my first question was, what was it he was doing that enabled him to move that quickly? And I don't think it was anything other than the thing that we talk about a lot. You've got to make your guys fit. You know, yeah, ta talent's God-given to an extent. Um, talent's a lot of things, right? It's a lot of things. It's your ability to listen. It's your passion. It's your dedication. You can be talented. A lot of people are talented, but to be good, you've got to be fit. Yeah, You've got to be fit enough to express your talent for the duration of the contest. And what that documentary anchor was, just how obsessed Phil Martin was with fitness. Now, he had a lot of things which, looking back on it now, I realize I probably stole from him or someone like him. And this idea that you go for group runs first thing in the morning. You don't see that anymore. You don't see, you know, and we can talk about modern science and so on and so forth. But the non-physical benefits of running with your teammates, even if it's only for 30 minutes in the morning, you can't imagine because that's when you have your conversations. That's when you have a laugh and a joke. That's when you bond. That's when you become a team. That's when you become a unit. And it's that unit, like success moves in groups. You know, don't let anyone tell you. And this is why when I hear boxers talk about, it's just me. It's that boxing's a lonely road. It's just me. It's not true. The fight is a lonely road. Like being in that ring for 12 rounds with an opponent is a lonely, lonely road. Boxing, the wider thing, is a team effort. You will go nowhere without a team. You will go nowhere. So when boxers think in individual terms, I always remind them, you'll need this team. And it's not just your trainer, your cut man, your manager, your advisor. It's not just them. It's the other guys in the gym. So if someone does a personal best on Monday, you're like, I need to do one on Tuesday. That pressure is what Phil Martin seems to have brought to, to his gym. And what he also had, from what I could see is he had unrestricted access to maybe the best raw materials in Manchester. Now, I'm not an expert on Manchester, so all the Manx here are going to pull me up. But from what I know of Manchester, if I were to set up a gym, it would be somewhere like Moss Side. It might be somewhere just off the off Berry New Road, um, you know, Cheatham Hill way, or it would be some deep in the heart of Salford. Now, if you look at, Trainers who really cracked it. Phil Martin in the heart of Moss Side. Uh, I think Oliver Harrison was in the heart of Salford, wasn't he? Now, I have no idea if there was ever a boxing gym in Cheatham Hill. If there is, then please let me know. But you've got Collihurst and Moston, which is further north. And so you ha once you have these gyms in these locations, what you have is you have that resource that says these kids can already fight. That's what they've been doing outside. You know, there's already a natural order. People already know who's who. And all we do here is teach them to box. You just have that. They're the raw materials. You have the right physical component. You have the right emotional component because there's a lot of struggle in Moss Side, you know, especially post-rise. There's a lot of, you know, backs against the wall. So you can luck out in that sense, but to turn all of that energy into success in championships isn't easy. Because when you watch Phil Martin fighters, there's nothing spectacular. It's not like watching Ingle guys where it's legs and hands and head everywhere. It's not. It's as simple as, you know, one, two, left up, one, two, left up, right uppercut. But they always looked so fit. 
that it looked effortless to them. And they, they had that missing ingredient. And I always say in every environment I've ever coached in, I've always tried to bring this with me. The place you train should be a very scary place. And I say that because in the days of training up at the lodge, it was a scary place to go. Now, I'm sure everyone listening to this who can relate knows. You used to walk up and your worst nightmare was one of the people you had to jump in the ring with walking up next to you because you're like, oh, God. God, because you're going to talk about nothing other than what's about to come, which is what you were trying to avoid. And you have that, that trepidation because you know it's going to be tough. And what you try and do is you try and make it as tough as it can be without being damaging. And like, I remember being a double jab and we did that. You, you knew if you were there on a Monday or a Wednesday, it was going to hurt you because that's what it was meant to do. So when you went into a fight, after the initial skirmishes, you suddenly realized this wasn't as bad as what you went through in training. Now you can express yourself. Now you can work hard. And with the fitness on top of that, you can be unstoppable. And when you train that way, what it means is someone can miss a week of training and still perform. We had a kid, and I remember this, a kid called Julio Tuizana, who I think might be the most talented person I've seen in a boxing ring. Um, I've seen this kid come in, not box for six months, 10 days of training, jumped into a fight, won. And you're like, how on earth do you do that? And I remember it, like you'd watch him and he'd be in fights with people who were far more celebrated and people expected far more from, and he'd play with them. And he'd play with him to the point where you'd have to remind him between rounds, look, <laughs> I know you're playing with him, but you know, you got to stamp your authority on this so the judges understand that this is easy for you. But all of these things come out from brutal training. You know, added to the right recovery, but brutal training. And we've lost that. In the era of strength and conditioning coaches and these people like, uh, what's the boxing science guy's name? Danny Wilson. And they show up with their little spreadsheets and their pie charts and their little line graphs. And they try and convince you there's a scientific way to survive for 12 rounds. And there isn't. Because surviving for 12 rounds isn't about, you know, people in lab coats and, you know, hyperbaric chambers and anything like that it's not about anything about that it is literally about have you put yourself in enough uncomfortable situations that 12 rounds of boxing is not going to stress you out there's no science behind that that is just literally you wanting to test yourself continuously that's what the runs do that's what you know the sparring does that's what the bag work does it says are you prepared to red line and go beyond that and you do that often enough boxing will reward the accumulation of stress and volume and a lot of people seem to forget this. I see a lot of young coaches now and they come in and they just want to look good on Insta. So they talk about stuff that's not relevant. Um, and they show you routines and drills that aren't practical. And if you want a really good example of this, there's a guy called Mustafa Boxing. And I see a lot of British coaches on this guy's balls, right? And they are just literally munching down on the hair around those balls going, oh my God, this guy's so clever. But you look at the fighters he produces and they're rubbish. This isn't a guy that's producing Golden Gloves champions every year. This isn't a guy that's winning PAL leagues in America. He's doing nothing other than posting videos, which he's probably boosting anyway. And you get a lot of these snake oil salesmen. We have a lot of them in this country. And um, there's that guy, what's his name? The Cuban boxing coach. 
and he just pipes up and no one can check his credentials and he comes and he talks about all these stupid steps you have to take and you know my views on the Cuban system it's it's all smoke and mirrors right the Cuban system is like Phil Martin right you get you get the cream of the crop and you make them super fit and you teach them how to box there's no magic to it there is zero magic to it. And I always think that was the missing piece in the Brendan Ingle jigsaw because Ingle fighters were never that fit. But let's come back to that because that's an interesting point because the other thing that I found interesting in this documentary about Phil Martin was once his guys started winning and winning spectacularly, they never got honours. They never got the, the recognition you would. So a guy like Morris Core, if you're knocking people out for fun, and you're a six foot five light heavyweight, how are you not at the Olympics? How are you not at the 1988 Olympics? If you're someone like uh, uh, Mario Culpepper, how are you not at the Olympics? You know, how, how are we not talking about Moss Side ABC being one of the great clubs? Even if it was just for a short space of time, how are they never talked about in the same way that Unity's talked about, in the same way that Repton were talked about, in the same way that uh, the Solia talked about or Rotunda or Everton Red Triangle or Empire all these other clubs get talked about their head trainers get talked about you know you hear Adam Smith venerate these guys but not Phil Martin and to an extent not Brendan Ingle yes there was some recognition from the establishment but Ingle fighters never got the, the real respect they deserved and that's why a lot of them turned pro early because they weren't getting the international honours they deserved, you know. I don't know how many how many England or GB vests Ryan Rhodes has, but I'm sure it could have been more. And so that's the downside. You see, if you don't have representation in the media, fans don't believe you exist. Phil Martin exists. You could mention Phil Martin and his achievements in the same breath as Brendan Ingle, because by the time Phil Martin passed in 94, there probably wasn't much between them. If you were a young boxer maybe training out of Bradford, and you had a choice between Phil Martin's Champs Camp or Brendan Ingle's gym, St. Thomas's, that's a pick and that's a 50-50. But because Brendan had the juice and he had Naz and he had that pull, that's what happens. And so I'm watching all of this. And, you know, to non-hardcores, it's not very interesting, but it is because it helps you understand boxing, that there are a lot of things that get left off when we tell the story because some people don't think they're sexy, some people don't think they're important. I do. And especially as a trainer, guys like Philip Martin show that you can always find the knowledge. Right? Boxing's really simple. Like, I see guys doing these really complex inside fighting drills. Like, yeah, in this situation, you can do these 17 moves and you'll be okay. And you're like, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. And, you, you know, you ask the coach, you say, oh, why don't you come here and show me what you're trying to do? And as soon as they do it, you go, but I'll just do this. And then they go, no, 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 you wouldn't. And you say, okay, someone ring the bell and let's see. Let's see, let's see what all this theory does when the bell rings. And that's what happens, see? Because... And here's the thing. I'm a big believer in this idea that fighting and coaching are completely different disciplines. 
being good at one will not make you good at the other. But the key to being a good trainer, a good coach, a good teacher, is you have to understand what doesn't work. And the way you understand what doesn't work is by getting hit in the face when you try and do it. And then you understand why it doesn't work. And a lot of these guys right now are just textbook guys. And they're ruining careers as a result. I wish we could go back to that sort of Philip Martin ethos of be super fit, train super tough, and everything else will take care of itself. And I'm, and the more I think back to that documentary, and I, I, I do, I implore everyone to watch it because it's just a great story of, of a British success out of what was quite a traumatic period. And just to, to see what he meant and this is the thing that people don't understand, to see what he meant to all of those people in the documentary, Joe, Morris, Mario, Eric, to see what he meant to guys like Steve Bunce, and all of a sudden you realise if the fitness was enough, if the strength and conditioning was enough, if the tough sparring was enough, they wouldn't feel this way. The art of a good trainer has to include the ability to generate love from those that you train. And that's the one thing I take pride in in my life. I could generate love in those that I trained. Why? Because I had love for them. Deep, deep felt, real emotional love. Like, it, I care about what they do now. I will care about what they do in 20 years from now. Because I'm invested. I can't ask them to invest if I don't invest. And that's why you can't train certain people because you don't feel that bond. That bond where you become conjoined, almost like Siamese twins. It's an important bond to have. You know, I, I look back at the, the two clubs I spent the most time with because in my time, I spent time with the Swedish national team. I spent time with the French national team. I spent time up in the States, you know, Gleason's and other gyms. And I'm... I've, you know, so I've, I've seen different things. I've taken different influences in. But in terms of the most time I've spent in gyms, it was Double Jab and Fitzroy Lodge. And just watching that documentary, I was able to compare the two. And look at Double Jab. Like, we had the pick of, of human beings, um, mindset, physicality, whatever you want to define it as, from, from halfway down the old Kent Road all the way to Woolwich. And as far deep as you wanted, we had, we had that kind of pull. You know, even just locally, you had a lot of the guys come in, you know, a lot of the real street kids or the brothers of the guys who were running the streets back then. You know, and these are guys who, unfortunately, someone incarcerated, actually many were incarcerated for firearms. But you had the pick. And because you had that mindset already, that street mindset, you could crank the training. up, And it was about who could keep up. And so over time at Double Jab, we could filter out the guys who weren't up to it. And so by the, you, you end up with a hardcore of guys who, and it's not just guys, it's, it's, it's men, it's women, it's young girls, it's young boys. It's a mindset thing. It's nice, isn't it? If everyone could run three miles in 18 minutes, that'd be fantastic. But not everyone can do that. But as long as you can run it faster next month than you do this month, that's, that's what we want. And we had the pick of that and we could push these guys as hard and that enabled us to move quickly to go from literally a startup club 
to demolishing reputations in two and a half, three years. And my only regret is we didn't have another three years to really take over because I think that would have been a purple patch. You know? And I compare that with Fitzroy Lodge where, how do you describe it? And I love all the people there. Though. It's, it's family. It's deeper than just boxing with those guys. It's families, guys I respect. But there wasn't a single tough training session there. From 2016 to now, there wasn't a single tough training session. There wasn't a training session where I saw people really struggle. There were a few sessions I ran and people were crawling, crawling at the end of them. And then I was like, this is how you train. But nothing else. It was all very nice, all very friendly. But it wasn't toughening you up. And that's why people struggled to progress. And people left en masse again. Because what happens... You face elite competition who are fit, who are strong, and who are savages, and you suddenly realize you're not prepared for this. And watching that documentary, it just reminded me, this is not a sport for nice environments. It's not a sport for mollycoddling and hugging and kissing someone's cheek. It's not a sport for that. But there's plenty of time in life for that with the people you train. Plenty of time. And that's why I don't lose many people. I stay in touch with pretty much everyone I've ever trained because I've never fallen out with people I train. Never. And it's a weird one to explain to people because it never gets talked about enough, but it's a lonely life when you're a trainer because there are times where you want to do the right thing and you want to give them a hug and do that, but you also understand long-term that's not going to help them. You want to you take down the intensity of sparring, but you understand that's not going to help them. So there's a human side and then there's a practical side. And being able to manage those two is what distinguishes guys who really crack this training thing from guys that don't. But I want to switch gears and I want to ask a question to everyone listening. What are we watching on April 23rd? I know at 10 o'clock I'll be watching Tyson Fury versus Dillian White if it happens. But I don't know what else I'm going to watch. Am I going to be watching Isaac Lowe at 9 o'clock against someone? I don't know who you're going to dig up. You know, as, as healthy as the kind of bantamweight to super featherweight scene is in the UK, it doesn't seem that there are any viable opponents for, for thingy to fight, for Isaac Lowe to fight. Can you whack him in with Reese Bellotti? I don't know. Frank wins a purse bid and seemingly has no clue who's going on this card. And you've still got pay-per-views to shift, by the way. So it's not like you can just rest on your laurels and say the fans are just going to show up and listen or watch whatever you put in front of us. We're not. It's all feeling a bit amateurish. And this is one of the times, again, you've got to give Eddie Hearn the tick. I don't think Eddie would let an event get three weeks away and it still be this chaotic and this unclear. And no communication, by the way. Nothing. Now, from, from the Warren organization, I don't care who it is now, if it's George, if it's Fry, I don't care who. You know, we're losing confidence. Like, I genuinely don't want Frank to have another big fight like this again. You know, the Zach Parker, Demetrius Andre things, what Frank should be doing. You know, a dead fight in a backwater that no one cares about. Do that. Please do that. And leave... Leave these other events to Sky. Leave these other events to zone because seemingly they have a better grasp of how to make this happen. Like, I have zero interest in Fury versus White now. 
Dillian's not playing ball. Tyson's in camp. I don't really know what to expect, you know. I know he's pushing the Furiosity brand and all that, but it doesn't feel like we have a fight coming up. My instincts are telling me we, we might not have a fight coming up. There might be some problems. There might be an injury. There might be an injury, and then there might be an injury in another training camp, which means the dance partners have to move around. Don't quote me on that, but it's the feeling that I get. Because nothing about this fight feels right so far. Uh, how are you investing more energy into Parker versus Andrade than you are, you know, Fury versus White? I, I, I don't understand it. Unless, unless the money's done its job. And actually, no one cares now. The money's done what it was supposed to do. Everyone's happy. It's... It's not a good look for the Frank Warren organization. Now, Queensbury are not coming out of this inspiring confidence. You're now looking at this going, yeah, mm. you know, I'm Dennis McCann. I'm like, well, how the hell is my name not on there already? If I'm someone like a Sam Noakes, I'm like, this is where, this is where you need me to cross over. If I'm David, David Adler, I'm like, I want that. Everyone should be fighting for that slot. And I don't even hear people tweeting or communicating and saying, listen, I want to jump on that April 23rd card. Let me make a statement. Put me in a tough fight. I'm ready for this. There's no seemingly no hunger. But then again, they might just be keeping their powder dry and then saving it for that final two-week run. But I can say this with absolute certainty. I don't, I don't want to see Queensbury anywhere near a big fight again because this is shambolic. And I'm sure Bob Arum's looking at it going, oh, man, like, why, why couldn't we deal with Sky? <laughs> but I bet a lot of people are getting buyer's remorse about the tickets. And I'm ah, uh, <laughs> I've seen the tweets. How can four fights for Fury White have fallen through? The biggest fight of the year. Yeah, it's definitely the biggest fight of the first half of the year, without question. Who doesn't want to be on there? How can four fights have fallen through? Who doesn't want to be on that card? Or who doesn't want to work with Frank? You know, and then we're hearing about Joe Joyce versus Joseph Parker. Can you tell me why that's not chief support? That could have been done a long time ago. Why is that not chief support for this? Our boxing's a shambles at this point, man. I... <laughs> Frank's trying to drag out the money, not realizing that a lot of people, if they could, would return their tickets and go, let me just buy the pay-per-view. Yeah? Because you're all going to be sat there from five o'clock yeah, you might even end up just watching some amateur boxes, man. Like Frank might have to literally do that. Or you're going to be stuck there watching, oh, God, I don't even know, Mark Little or someone. It's just thanks, but no thanks. Man. This, is, this is why I don't buy tickets till the last minute because you're not going to take me for an idiot. Man. I'm not having one single inch of that. You know what I mean? Like, look at Eddie. You know the, the Boatsy versus Richie card will be bottomed out pretty soon if it's not already. And then there'll be a few slots where he'll put people in that we're interested in. Why can't Frank do that? Genuinely, why can't Frank do that? But, <laughs> but in good news, John Fury's running for mayor of Manchester because, and I will happily vote for him because <laughs> I have a feeling he'll just have an ordinance that bans Porky from the city limits of Greater Manchester. <laughs> oh man, that'd be interesting. Um, John Fury better than Andy Burnham? Well, he can't be much worse. Let's be honest. It's 
Maybe he'll fight on April 23rd. I don't, I just, I've lost the will to live when it comes to Frank because everything looks so good. You know, when he had the, he had the golden ticket, didn't he? Where he had Denzel on fire. He had Dubois kind of working his way back. Joe Joyce was on fire. Anthony Yard had kind of resurrected himself. You know, they were in a good place. And now it just looks like it's a bit of a shambles. And I don't think that's down to the boxes. Genuinely, whatever's happening at that head office is piss poor. Like, Frank feels to me like Vince McMahon, where he, he, he thinks that what he does is what draws money. And any show that he puts together will ultimately draw money and make a profit. April 23rd, I feel the fans are going to give him a rude awakening. One... One fighter we have to talk about before the weekend kicks in is Devin Haney. Now, Dev's 23, and he's traveling over to Australia to fight for all the marbles, right? So whoever wins this fight, we're kind of like, you're the top of the mountain, you know? And in an era where people find reasons not to do things, Devin Haney's actually found every reason to do something. He's cleared every obstacle, removed every barrier, and said... Whatever it takes, I'm not even going to quibble about money. We're going to make this happen. And Kel surprise, the fight actually happens. It makes you wonder, would we have got Wilder versus Joshua if Eddie Hearn wasn't involved? Would we already have Didion White versus everyone else had Eddie Hearn not been involved? And if we can see this, why can't boxers see this? What is it that Eddie does for these guys that we don't see? This is the thing I've been trying to figure out for years now. What is it that Eddie does that we don't see? Because they should have left him a long time ago. And when people say to go where, Anthony Joshua could set up his own organization. Right? He's the money man in British boxing. He could have set up his own organization. He could have said to Dillian and Derek, Adam Eubank Jr., guys, Let's just have our own promotional company. Like Oscar did with Golden Boy. Let's do that. And then, I mean, they'd be flying now. In contrast, look, they, they all have kind of lukewarm careers because their promoter got in the way of the opportunity. You know, meanwhile, Devin Haney's going to face George Kambosis. And that's not, it's not an easy fight because... George is everything that Haney loves, but he's also everything that Haney hates. And so he's going to have to be on his metal for 12 rounds. Now, imagine Haney stopped him. That would be absolutely insane. But the, I guess it goes to show that certain people can make fights happen whenever they want. And it's a reminder that Spence Crawford shouldn't be that hard to make. It shouldn't be that hard to make. And on a side note... Has anyone seen the video of Terence Crawford deadlifting 160, no, 180 kilos in civilian clothes and then doing 200 in full gym kit? He did 180 kilos on the deadlift in his civilian clothes. Now, have I done that before? Yeah. Would I recommend it? No, because I shredded my boxer shorts doing it. So probably not the best thing for me to do. But for Crawford to do that, and it wasn't sumo, it was conventional. That's, that's impressive. You can ask whatever questions you want, but for me, that's still impressive. Because he must have been about 75 kilo body weight. That is absolutely insane. Like, the, 
the level some of these guys are getting to is mind-blowing. And, you know, if you're doing 200 the way he did 200, there's probably 215 in there, man. Jesus. Man, like, I mean, like human adaptation is going in directions no one thought it would. But, you know, let's see what that does for him when he fights. They're talking about Danny Garcia next, which if, if we're not going to get him versus Spence next, I'll take him versus Garcia or him versus Thurman as an interim. You know, good money for him, and then we can get to the big one. Whether it's Spence, whether it's Ugas, not that bothered. I have a feeling that Ugas might be good value on the win. I just have a feeling, and don't ask me why. There's just something in the way that Errol Spence is shaping up at the moment where I'm like, ooh, I am not sure. Just conscious of time. Um, there's a boxer show on Saturday. It's got Savannah Marshall on it. It's got some other guys from the Northeast. I know I've got listeners in the Northeast, but guys, these guys aren't at that level where we need to be having in-depth discussions about them, unfortunately. And, and I don't think any of them are Lewis Ritson. So all you can say is good luck on that. And, you know, hopefully Savannah wins. And we just get to the crux of it. Savannah versus Clarissa Shields. Give us a super card for that, please. But on a, on a side, side, side note, it still baffles me that Pat McCormack, easily the best amateur of his era. Easily. Um, Olympic silver medalist? His brother, Luke McCormack, one of the best amateurs this country has had. Right? Between the two of them, amateur boxing royalty in this country. Frank said no. Eddie said no. Ben Shalom said no. And I can't figure out what it is that turned them off. Because I don't think they wanted to be on Pro Bellum. That The energy I was getting prior to the Olympics was sky or zone. So to end up on Pro Bellum defies all logic because they've essentially disappeared. In fact, a lot of these Olympians have already disappeared. We're, we're, not, we're not engaged in the process. Think about it. The 2020 Olympians, right? Who, who really comes to, to your mind? Lauren Price, yeah. Is she going to turn pro this year? I assume so. And I assume once Karis can get her release from the army, she will also turn pro. And obviously the goal is to have them fight on the same card. You know, it works. That's more lucrative that way. But now you start to look at the men. Fraser Clark, one fight, broke his hand. Massive red flag when a heavyweight breaks his hand and has to have it operated on after one fight. You know the career is not going to be long because, like, your whole stock in trade is power. Ben Whitaker, back in the lab. Um, he, he looks fully recovered from his shoulder injury. But he's young, so he can grow into, into a new body anyway. And so I think there's an announcement incoming on that. And then you start going down the ladder and you're like, uh, Siobhan Clark, box on the Matchroom show. But all of these guys are relatively anonymous. Like, I think most people have just given up hope in this whole halo effect of the Olympics. And they just said, right, go out there and prove yourself. But if anyone knows the real reason the McCormacks didn't get signed by a mainstream promoter, please let me know, because that must be the weirdest thing ever. That's almost like having, like having Neymar and having Neymar playing for Wiccan Wanderers. You're a bit like, help me make sense of this, please. 
So if anyone's got the answers, let me know. Other than that, guys, have a great weekend. It's it's sunny, it's snowing, it's windy, it's occasionally drizzly. Um, welcome to Britain, I guess. And you know, have a fantastic weekend. And hopefully catch you guys on the other side for Monday Mass.